This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello, and thanks for downloading another podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. This week, we're looking at the colourful lives of a 17th century couple and their pleasure palace in Derbyshire. In the 1600s, William and Margaret Cavendish used Bolsover Castle as a place for entertaining and pursuing interests. William once spent around £15,000 entertaining King Charles I and Queen Henrietta Maria. This was a huge amount of money at the time, amounting to near the annual rental for his estates. Now, William and Margaret were also keenly interested in the arts and culture. In fact, Margaret was one of the most prolific female writers of the time. Today, this creative couple and their fairy tale mansion are the focus of a new project designed to bring their stories to life for visitors through theatrical costumes and interactive props. And joining us to explain more about all this are our three guests for today. Hi, I'm Megan Leyland. I'm a senior properties historian at English Heritage. Hi, I'm Sophie Fratwell, and I'm the costume designer for this project. Hello, yes, I'm Mel Northover, and for this project I was the illustrator. So a fantastic and interesting project, but we'll start off with Megan first of all. Megan, where is Bolsover Castle and um, who was it originally built for? Bolsover Castle is an extraordinary 17th century aristocratic retreat. And one of the great joys of visiting Bolsover is the drive into the town of Bolsover and you see above you perched high above the road this incredible castle. It looks over the Vale of Scarsdale in Derbyshire. And what's there today is a product of the 1600s. But there was an earlier castle on the site. The original castle was built in about the late 11th century by William Peveril, one of William the Conqueror's knights. And he had been granted extensive estates in the area in 1068, which included the Manor of Bolsover. The later history as it carried on, the castle was seized by the crown in 1155. And really, by the time we get to the mid 14th century, was falling into neglect and ruin. It was leased to a series of tenants who don't really appear to have lived there. However, a lot of the stories we're talking about today come from that slightly later period and is the result of building works in the 1600s by the Cavendish family and built on top of the ruins and earthworks of that medieval castle. In 1608, Charles Cavendish leased Bolsover Castle from the then owner and purchased it fully in 1613. He was a soldier, but also a very interested person in architecture and art. And inspired by Bolsover's earlier history in the ruinous castle, in 1612, he started building what's called the Little Castle. This was overseen by John Smithson, one of the probably better known designers from the period. And what he created has been described as something as a toy keep. It's clearly inspired by the Norman great towers, but seen through a 17th century lens. So a lot of the early building that we see today was completed more or less by Charles before he died in 1617. And do we see much of the original Norman edifice there or is it mostly now this uh, 1600s type building? Most of the built structures that we see today are the 1600s. You can um, gain a sense of the sort of footprint of where that earlier site was and you can see the town that built up around it. But um, yeah, a lot of the standing surviving ruins are that 17th century period of building. Right. We're talking about different members of the family here. We've got a William and a Charles. When does William 
who's our key character in our story here, become owner of the castle. So Charles dies in 1617 and William, at that time, aged 25, inherited the Cavendish estates, including Bolsover Castle. And William basically finishes and embellishes what his father had started and really puts his own flair and stamp on the site. And Margaret becomes his wife eventually. And when does that happen? She comes into William's story a touch later. Not long after inheriting Bolsover Castle, William actually married his first wife, a wealthy Midlands heiress, Elizabeth Bassett. And unfortunately, she died in 1643. Now, we're in the Civil War years by that time. And William Cavendish was quite an important player in all of this. And in 1644, he was involved in one of the largest battles of the Civil War and actually what was a catastrophic defeat where effectively the Royalists lost the north of England. And he went into exile on the continent. And this is a long way of me getting to Margaret because she was also there. She was 30 years his junior and she was part of the court of Queen Henrietta Maria. So that's the wife of Charles I. And she had travelled with the Queen to Paris in 1644. And William and Margaret's paths crossed. And they engaged in a wonderful courtship. They liked a bit of saucy poetry. The Queen wasn't quite sure on the match and neither were some of their friends. But by 1645, they were married. And so she became his second wife. So this sounds like... um perfect match really for a couple of royalists doesn't it yeah and i think there was quite a meeting of minds with both of them they shared a lot of interests and i think william particularly during that period where they weren't in england really nurtured a lot of margaret cavendish's then margaret lucas and before she was married passions and eventually i guess they come to bolsover castle and begin a new life there yeah, so while they weren't, were away, Bolsover was having a bit of a tough time. Things were not quite so rosy. With William's departure, Bolsover was surrendered to parliamentarian forces, garrisoned, slighted, so deliberately damaged to prevent its use. Furniture disappeared. So they would have returned back to England at the Restoration in 1660, William to a much depleted estate and not quite looking how he had left it. And that would have been really probably the first time that Margaret would have seen Bolsover Castle, which would become a place where they, they probably spent a great deal of time. Right. So it's a good sort of decade and a half before they actually get to manage to actually start a new life. Yeah. So William would have had this sort of time and life at Bolsover before the Civil War. But in terms of the time with Margaret, that was, yeah, quite a while, actually, after meeting. And Bolsover is interesting because it's not quite as simple as, as lived there. They had another home five miles away called Welbeck Abbey. Bolsover forms a slightly different function. It's, it's something of a retreat and a pleasure palace, a place for entertaining and occasional occupation as much as a full-time home. Right, yes, I should probably correct myself there by saying that it's sort of like the second property, the second home mm. that some people might have in Cornwall or something like that, or, <laughs> you know, a holiday home or something. Is it along those lines? Yeah, a bit like that. It's kind of the Cavendish's sort of showpiece for entertaining. They would go there to gather all their friends and they would use it as a, a backdrop to great entertainments, as a place for creativity as a place to write and listen to music. So it, it's an aristocratic retreat, is a great way, a pleasure palace. 
I'm presuming it still had living quarters, though. Places to stay and bathe and eat and do poetry and read and what have you. Absolutely. There would have been bedchambers there and there were particularly grand sort of set of state apartments for accommodating the best guests at Bolsover. So, yes, they would have had places. They wouldn't have gone hungry (laughs) or without a good night's sleep. So how did it change under their ownership then? What did they do to it after the sort of 1660s? As we've already heard, William Cavendish had quite a significant impact on Bolsover after his father's death. He filled the interiors with these extraordinary, lavish paintings, which have survived today, and that's really quite remarkable. They were completed before um, this later period in 1621, and throughout his lifetime, he continued to add to and develop Bolsover. So he added a terrace range, which evolved from the 1620s, and he did some work later on on that, which were these state apartments for accommodating and entertaining the best guests. And on his return from exile, he really indulged in one of his greatest passions, which actually we've spoken about before on our podcast about animals, which was training horses. And to accommodate that, he built this cavernous, magnificent riding range where he could really enjoy that later in his his life Mm. when he returned from those more turbulent years. Could you give us um, an idea of some of the guests that um, Bolsover Castle as entertainment venue welcomed? So perhaps the grandest event to take place at Bolsover was the visit of King Charles I and Queen Henrietta Maria. And they came on the 30th of July, 1634. This would have been a big deal to have the royals there. It was a sign of favour for the Cavendishes and an opportunity for William to show his loyalty. And he certainly did that. He hosted a lavish entertainment called Love's Welcome, written by the famous poet and playwright Ben Johnson. There would have been feasting, music, dancing, costumes, stage sets. And it really sounded like it would have been a really great party. Yeah. This is all pre-Civil War, obviously, in the 1630s. Um, Just remind us for our dates and for our homework, when does the Civil War start properly? 1642. Right, so this is when um, everyone's quite relaxed and there's plenty of entertaining and partying going on. Yes, they were reasonably relaxed during this. Actually, there's quite an interesting episode where outside the gates of Bolsover, there's protests by miners trying to petition the king at the time. So they would have enjoyed the entertainments with a little caveat that there was some civil unrest going on in the kingdom as well. Let's have a look now about the uh, Bolsover storytelling project. We've got a good sense now of this sort of pleasure palace and it seems like a very attractive place to go and have a party. Yeah, rub shoulders with the rich and famous, spread your influence, that kind of thing, do deals, do business. But the storytelling project itself, um, what's that all about? So we're really excited about the storytelling project because it aims to bring to life some of those stories and the different aspects of some of the characters we've already heard about in some kind of new and exciting ways. And we're going to be using costumed volunteers to engage with our visitors to explore some of these stories and really bring to life what Bolsover might have been like in its heyday. They're going to be wearing these fantastic costumes which Sophie and Mel have worked incredibly hard on which combine incredible design and illustration and props to really engage visitors and give them a sense of the drama and theatre of Bolsover in the 17th century and to have those face-to-face conversations and discover a bit more in depth 
get under the skin of Bolsover, really making them active players in this wonderful site. Right. So which characters are going to be walking around in costume? We focused on three characters to bring to life different aspects of the castle, two of whom you've heard about already, so that's Margaret and William Cavendish. And the third is a storyteller. Now, they're a fictional character, but in many ways represent the little castle itself. Okay. Can you tell me a bit more about how they represent the little castle? This is the sort of Norman-derived or Norman-inspired structure there, isn't it? Yeah, so the storyteller is going to be based in the little castle and their primary role is going to be bringing to life those stories of the paintings on the interiors. So they're going to be your guide to the little castle, pulling out the hidden messages and meaning and and all the little bits and pieces which were cleverly put into those paintings I mentioned earlier. Okay, well let's move on to who made the costumes and we're going to speak now to costume designer Sophie Fratwell. Tell us then, Sophie, how did you approach this project and what was the process of designing these three costumes? Well, I was given quite a bit of freedom with this in terms of designing for the project, actually, because the brief was to design sort of a whimsical, fantastical version of 17th century clothes. So it didn't have to necessarily be completely historically accurate, which Mm. was really nice. So as well as researching all the historical material that Megan provided with the brief, I was also looking at more modern silhouettes and fabrics and textures and seeing if any of them might tell visitors a little bit about the characters. Okay. So I would start out with sketching little rough drawings of different silhouettes and trying out different colours and things that might work. And then I'd develop these into the final illustrations, which I would share with the team and I'd get some feedback and we'd work out a version that we were all happy with. We'll talk about some of the other illustrations that Mel did as well in a bit. But um, let's start off with the actual finished product, the costume that you designed for Ladies First, Margaret Cavendish. Can you tell us some of the key features of this and how they relate to her story? Yeah, so with Margaret, I knew that I wanted to design something that had both masculine and feminine aspects. We knew that we wanted her to seem like a a trailblazer, a thoroughly modern woman, because she was. She was so prolific in her writing and philosophy and science and her thoughts on gender and politics. So underneath this sort of extravagant hooded 17th century cloak, I designed a pair of breeches. So she had some 17th century masculine elements to her costume. And her coat also has these long feather-shaped sleeves which are meant to look a little bit like quills and are meant to symbolise her writing career and things like that, because obviously she wrote The Blazing World, which was an incredible novel. And when you say her coat, are we talking about sort of, not like an overcoat in today's sort of modern fashion sense, we're talking about more of a jacket, which is sort of more knee length, I suppose? Yes, it's more like a a hooded cloak. I took a lot of liberties with historical silhouettes with Margaret, because I think she's definitely the most modern of the characters. I think if she were around today, she'd still seem quite eccentric and have some pretty amazing views and be an intelligent lady. So she's got this very eccentric hooded cloak and it's got a really long train on it because she was known for her quite extravagant fashion taste. Right. So we wanted something quite dramatic. So very avant-garde, very sort of yes. Paris, Paris even. Yeah. <laughs> Paris rather than London. Yes. Okay. Um, That's really interesting. Okay, let's move on to William, her husband, William Cavendish's costume. Can you describe what his looks like? Well, 
Because William was such a skilled horseman, I knew I wanted to give him something a bit more practical as a base. So I gave him this leather doublet, which is quite practical and he might have worn out riding back in the day. But What's a doublet? He was also, uh, so that is sort of the top part of the costume, a bit like a jacket. Okay. And it's got all these buttons down the front and it's made of all this hand-tailored leather and it's sewn in padded lines so it has a nice design on it. Right. And yeah, he was also known for his flamboyant taste as well. So we've given him pops of really bright colour in sort of the lining of his cape and his breeches, which are like the trousers. Yes. And he also has um, quite a lot of fun props. So he has a set of medals, which I hand-painted and I cast out of plastic and resin and things. And they're all pinned to his sash and they're meant to represent the various titles and things he gained as a supporter of the crown and someone high up in the political world. And he also has this really quirky 17th century wig, which I designed to look like it was made out of wine corks because right. he was known to like a party. Broadly speaking, the colours. You've talked about the fact that uh, this isn't necessarily historically accurate or reflective mm. of the exact period that this would have all taken place. But are the colours quite out there as well? Yes, definitely. A lot of these colours they wouldn't have been able to find in dyes and in fabrics back in the day. So I definitely knew I wanted to use some modern fabrics. We've got some synthetic fabrics that wouldn't have existed. It would have all been cotton and pure silk. But because these characters are still so relevant today, we knew we wanted those modern touches. So if you were trying to describe this to someone who hasn't seen the outfits, obviously I've seen them, they're very bright, aren't they? And they are quite... I'm not going to say garish, but they're definitely um, avant-garde, aren't they? They're definitely, you know, pushing the envelope fashion-wise. <laughs> yes, yes. They're super quirky, super flamboyant. I had a lot of fun designing them. Because they're meant to be a collection of signs and symbols, really. So mm. the entire costume illustrates different aspects of their story and their history and their character. So they are really quirky. So codified costuming. Is what you've <laughs> yes, been yes. doing really. That's what costume design is, though, and I'm really passionate about it because it is a collection of signs and symbols. You are designing little clues almost that people can discover things about that character. So, if visitors go up to one of these characters in costume, will they be able to tell the visitor what they're wearing and what it means? Yes, so the volunteers will be briefed beforehand so they'll know all the different props and all the meanings behind them and things, the stories behind those props and behind the costume. And then they'll also be able to use Mel's beautiful illustrations, which are printed on all of the fabrics, the main fabrics of each costume, to mm. point to and tell the stories. Right. How did you gather all the materials for all these costumes? Well, we've been working on this project quite a while and it started pre-pandemic. I think we started November 2019, so it's been... Mm. And we had them in in 2020, so it was around a year we worked on this project. And a lot of the fabrics we sourced from Dorset local companies, because I like to go and see and touch and feel the fabrics. It's really the only way you can get a sense of how it's going to work together and how it might work on a larger scale and printed and things like that. And then a lot of the materials that I made the props from were things were like plastics and silicones and resins and those I ordered from specialist companies. And are you based in Dorset? Is this where they all were made? Yes, yes, I'm based in Dorset right. and the tailor I employed to make the costumes was based in Dorset too. 
Oh, right. So did you not get your needle and thread out yourself and your sewing machine? <laughs> Nobody would want me to do that. No, <laughs> it would be terrible. It would all be stapled together if I did it. <laughs> OK, so you just design. You don't necessarily make. Yes. So usually a costume designer will work with a costume interpreter who will be the tailor, the one creating costumes. So you do all the research and you do the designs and the drawings and you go out fabric sourcing with your tailor and you're choosing what colours and what styles of fabric will work together and what inspirations you have. And then you will work with the tailor and they will be sewing and you'll be sort of editing as you go along. How long did your tailor take to make the costumes then? Oh, I mean, she did them all at once, so it's hard to pinpoint an exact time period, but it was months and months of work. It's painstaking work, and a lot of it was hand-sewn, so it took a really long time. <laughs> was it quite patchwork? Because from what I could see from the pictures, it looks like you've got different colours in different areas of, say, the jacket and, and this sort of thing, so it looks like it's sort of been stitched together. Hmm. We wanted it to look as though it was all sort of parchmenty. So we actually ended up hand dyeing most of the fabric, which is quite a labor intensive process, but it gave that kind of ink stained, ink blot feel to all the fabrics. Because I knew that I wanted Mel's illustrations to feel quite historical. So a bit like an ink sketch that somebody had done with their quill. So I wanted the actual fabric to be a bit like paper. Yes, well, we were going to get on to Mel as well, because you've just mentioned her. Uh, you worked to incorporate the illustrative elements that she designed. So how did you begin your collaboration together? Yeah, so Mel's beautiful illustrations are on each of the costumes, and we actually ended up deciding to screen print these instead of digitally print or any other way of transferring them. So there are some quotes and things as well that go with each illustration. So after each fabric had been hand dyed, we would pin on printed placements of the illustrations and send this out to all the team. And then we would get feedback and maybe resize an illustration or a quote or change the placement of it until everyone was happy. And then we would print the final garment. It sounds like a lot of phone calls and emails and, um, you know, <laughs> trying to work together to make it all stitch together nicely yes yes i think the email chain for this project was insane <laughs> yeah well let's um, bring in mel to talk about her illustration then mel can you tell us what inspired you about this project well i mean there's so much to be inspired by as you've heard a little bit already i'm director at north oven brown where we design exhibitions for lots of historically important sites so i do often have the chance to work with knowledgeable curators and, and fantastic designers like Megan and Sophie but it's an absolute privilege to discover places like Bolsover and the characters that are sort of we're talking about in this storytelling project that I didn't know before so to be able to interpret them in this kind of engagement in this kind of way with costume interpreters is, is really exciting and, and just discovering Margaret alone has probably been um, the greatest revelation because like so many fascinating historical women I'm ashamed to say that I hadn't really heard of her before Megan introduced her to me so it was a joy to be able to get a sense of her accomplishments and her flamboyant character and portray that in the illustrations and really bring her stories to life you know she was a genuine inspiration I think with her tales of bear men and worm men in Blazing World in particular but her, it was really more about her curiosity and the way that she questions the science of the time and I really wanted to try and convey that energy in, in her depiction. Which one did you prefer working on? Women's fashion is generally more interesting, isn't it, than men's? But um, 
Well, I don't know. It depends. I mean, I, I suppose I was coming at it from a slightly different perspective of really just sort of looking at them overall and trying to find a style and find a way of being able to work with Sophie's incredible costume work and then create illustrations that were going to work as a suite across all of the costumes. So there was more fun had perhaps with Margaret, but not so much from the sort of feminine fashion point of view, but more from the blazing world, which has totally taken over my life since I, since I got involved with this project, because it's such a phenomenal work work which I'm sure Megan can tell you more about but the, the illustrations are sort of essentially black line drawings that we then changed the colour of so it was a little bit more sympathetic to a sort of brown ink that Sophie had alluded to just now this, this sense that we're creating the illustrations on paper and then these line illustrations then can be overlaid in the, on the colour and textures on Sophie's costumes and become integrated into the design like that I suppose they're fairly detailed um, and they're designed to sort of convey a real sense of energy and life to try and capture William and Margaret's uh, essence uh, who were obviously both extraordinary characters and they as Sophie mentioned they're both accompanied and the storyteller uh, illustrations are accompanied by illustrated quotes and then they work together across the layout to sort of support the story and the, the different narratives at play but it's really more about trying to make the characters that I'm portraying very gestural and very obvious and so that you're interested straight away and you're sort of beginning to get engaged and be playful around the, uh, around some of the ideas and trying to be as imaginative as possible. <laughs> of course. I had loads of fun. This project has been, as Sophie has said, it, it's been so much fun to do. In the process then, did it start with your illustrations and then those informing Sophie's costume design? Is that how it worked? I probably started a little ahead of Sophie and then we worked on how we would place the illustrations within the costume design. But for me the process always begins with the research so for me it was really trying to absorb as much information because I didn't know anything about these characters or Bolsover which is appalling. Um, I hope Megan's not feeling too terrible about <laughs> well, that. Well you're not um, a historian so but it's... I'm uh... not a historian. I mean even though my work does take me across you know all kinds of different historical spaces that we interpret as sort of part of my day job I didn't know anything about this so having a vivid imagination helps and as, as Megan then starts to describe William and Margaret's life to me for example William's dedication to his horses his sense of fun entertaining the king I then just begin to immediately conjure up imagery in my mind and, and then get it down on paper so that I start to sort of create something sort of dynamic and interesting. Uh, I mean, Sophie before mentioned the um, incorporating less of the historical accuracy, being informed by it, but not necessarily having to pare down every sort of stitch and button into the precise period features of the, of the time. And, and for me, it was a little bit like that. But um, we did include a lot of historically accurate uh, detail, like the menage position, so the, the horsemanship that William was particularly involved with, making sure that the position of the horses was correct in the illustrations and things like that the period accuracy of architecture and obviously even the the worms and the bear men of um, Margaret's blazing world stories they are depicted sitting on the grass chatting away with their big worm heads coming out of their period costume so there was a sort of sense of historical feeling and um, as if someone from the past had somehow been I don't know traveled through time and is conveying these stories to us in a modern context but referencing the past. So they formed on paper, but they also incorporate themselves into the costumes as well. 
Yes, yes. I mean, the starting point is, is on paper, and then they essentially become a digital file that then Sophie can take and use as a form for screen printing onto the costume. So they become, uh, the moment they sort of become part of the fabric, they soften and they become much more integrated into the, the whole overall scheme of the, of the costume wearer. Initially, you might think of them as a pattern, but then as you sit closer or come closer, they begin to sort of reveal themselves to you. So in a sense, it's not just a a piece of fashion, um, a piece of clothing or a collection of clothes. It's also a sort of walking piece of art as well, these costumes. Absolutely. Yeah, they are extraordinary. I think when you see them together, they are very different. They're unusual. They feel contemporary, and yet they feel like they've they've sort of stepped out of the the middle of the 17th century in some way as well. So there's a lot going on. I think if if you're um, if you're visiting, there's lots of little details and things that you can look out for. And I think that's part of the sort of enjoyment of the engagement with the project generally, just kind of delving deeper, asking questions, becoming curious, which you know Margaret was. you know, she's totally curious about absolutely everything. And I think to get that across has been great fun. Yes, I think if you're a fashion historian, a fashion Easter um, and um, a fashion student, you'll probably find, and even an artist, you might find something to uh, appeal to your eye if you look at these costumes in detail. And Absolutely, absolutely. Let's bring back in Megan to help wrap all this up and, well, do the buttons up, we could say. Megan, what do you think that William and Margaret Cavendish, these key players in English arts and culture and supporters of arts and culture and trailblazers in that era of the 1600s, would have thought about the costumes that have been made? It's something I've thought about quite a lot because I think the jumping off point for this project was very much, and I think you can hear it from what Sophie Mel have said, capturing a bit of the spirit of the castle and capturing something of the spirit of those individuals, Margaret and William. And I think they would really love it. I think the whole idea of it is so in keeping with that 17th century sort of entertaining mask kind of period so entertainments where they'd put you know like Charles I or where they'd be wearing costumes and set pieces and as you can probably tell I'm also in the camp of slightly obsessed with Margaret Cavendish (laughs) and I think she in particular would have really loved it. Margaret Cavendish was an incredible and prolific female author for the time and has an incredible literary legacy that we can enjoy today in many ways she was very aware of what people around her and particularly in the future might think of her work she was in a period which perhaps didn't necessarily understand her or and could be quite critical about her writing and particularly on subjects which were not considered traditionally the domain of women and in one of her publications which is publication of her plays which i recommend they're fascinating she writes i regard not so much the present as future ages for which i intend my books And here we are, over 350 years after she wrote that remark, appealing to future ages, retelling her story and, for many of us, rediscovering her incredible writing. And not only that, but I think there are other resonances with the project today and Margaret's sort of view of the world. We've heard about her creativity and how she thrived on being unique. And there's this wonderful quote of what she said where she goes I did dislike any should follow my fashions for I always took delight in singularity even in accoutrements of habits and I really hope that visitors will take delight in the singularity of the approach we've taken at Bolsover and I I really do think Margaret would have loved it and William too he was a snappy dresser and a creative in his own right as well. 
And this is obviously a storytelling project using costumed interpreters in the uh, parlance to explain to visitors and members the history of the, the venue and of the characters who you're seeing. There are other storytelling projects being rolled out across English heritage sites. Can you tell us about some of those? Yes, so the project we've been talking about today, Bolsover, will be launching in the spring of this year, all going well with the world. And then we've got in 2022 new storytelling projects which will be launching at Clifford's Tower, Audley End and Kenilworth Castle. For anyone who's going to see any of these, including the, the one more recently at Bolsover Castle, you can obviously just go up to the people and talk to them and, and they'll talk back, obviously. Yes. They're not, not silent. Yes. They will be promenading around the site, walking around, waiting for visitors who are interested or intrigued. And they will be there to, to talk through some of the wonderful things that Sophie and Mel have described and to act as your guides, not only to Bolsover, but also to some of those characters and personalities which inhabited it. So I suppose the first question for any visitor is, who are you wearing? <laughs> Isn't it? <laughs> That's so true. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> it's And it's not just that. It's, well, it's not just who, it's what, isn't it? And exactly. why? There's, exactly. There's, there's a lot of conversation to come from that initial sort of interaction, isn't there? And I think what's really exciting is it means you can, um, you almost get a tailored visit and that's really special. You become part no of that. No pun intended, obviously. Conversation... <laughs> I didn't even realise I'd done that. Um, and you become part of this conversation and you can pick on the illustrations that catch your eye or the aspects of the costume you find exciting or ask about a bit of the painting. So you can probably go back time and time again and have a different conversation and learn something completely new. Mel and Sophie, would you also agree with that? That it's Absolutely. rather than it sort of being mm, a sort of, what, what are you wearing? It, it's more like, oh, what are you wearing? That's really interesting. Yeah, I think I think it's going to foster a, a natural engagement with people who are just going to want to know more the moment they see the costumes. I really mm. do. I'm, I'm very excited to see how the public react in the spring. I'm, I'm hoping to go up myself, all being good, and uh, and just sort of see what, what the audience makes of it and see how the stories are sort of uh, told as well by the storytellers. It's, it's going to be really great. Mm. It's like leaving a little breadcrumb trail, really. We've designed these little clues. Mm. Yes, lots of little clues and what do they all mean? You're going to remember it for sure when you come away from the experience that I think those characters then will become embedded in your mind as you walk around the space, which can only be a, a good thing. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week, we'll discover some of the unsung working women who played their part in shaping the stories of English heritage sites. When war broke out in 1914, rest was offered up as a military hospital and Hannah Mackenzie was again kept on, this time to sort of manage the domestic arrangements, plus 20 nurses, plus having to cater for up to 200 convalescing soldiers as well. Thanks for listening. See you next time.